Welcome back to the Employee of the Month show. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And in this episode, I sat down with Lady Rizzo, who is a Grammy Award-winning cabaret star and one of the best live theater performers I've ever seen. And I say that because I've seen her show so many times. She's done everything from tributes to Nina Simone to covers of Dolly Parton and Blondie to her own original hits. And she's actually releasing her latest album this November. So I hope you will check her out. You can go to her website, LadyRizzo.com. Listen to our interview to find out what it takes to be a cabaret star and who goes into this. It's just a smidgen of talent needed. I'm teasing. Uh, It's 99% talent, but... There's also a lot of uh, work and also je ne sais quoi involved that she touches on. And at the end, you get to hear excerpts from our previous live taping of the Employee of the Month show at the Bell House, where Lady Rizzo performed live with Yair Evnine, her accompanist. If you enjoy the songs from the Employee of the Month show, then you should definitely come to our next live taping, which is November 14th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Very excited about that. I also want to just do a shout out to Common Rotation and thank them for our new opening theme song that they composed for the Employee of the Month show. Oh, tape live at Hyperbolic Audio. I'm not full of that much hyperbole. No, I always am full of hyperbole, but we did tape it live at Hyperbolic Audio Studios in New York, and thank you to them as well. So without further ado, here's my interview with Miss Lady Rizzo. I'm beyond thrilled to have Lady Rizzo on Employee of the Month. You've actually, you were on the first show? Ever? Yeah. Oh my God, I had no idea. And so it feels like such a culmination to have have you then on the Bell House and now have you here. So it's it's kind of a joy. Congratulations. What is it like knowing that every time someone sees your show, they fall in love with you? It's an incredible power that I'm trying not to abuse. Um, It's really great. And um, it's interesting in America versus the UK because... In the UK, I'll I'll start out with my like swagger lines of like, you know, come to my show. You know, no one has ever not liked it, or asked for their money back. And British people are like, ooh, because they're so modest. They have um, this real commitment to false modesty, and um, overconfidence really <laughs> frightens them, especially coming out of a woman because that's even rarer. But um, I I think it's amazing. I mean, my whole practice, I think. Um, is seducing, you know, seducing uh, en masse. And so it's great. It's um, interesting then also to meet people and have their hopes dashed that I am actually human. Can you remember when you realized that you had this power of seduction? I could seduce adults quite easily as a child, not sexually, but charming Charming wise. But it's um, good to know that you tried that angle. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about this? These are socks in my shirt, but um, I could definitely charm adults. And I like to because I was always audacious and talented. You know, I I have worked on my craft, but I was a talented child. But then I would also then just like, you know, lose things and have a stuffy nose. And so then I would as quickly like uncharm them. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Portland, Oregon, and this like hippie to be family. It wasn't Portland; it was Newport. I apologize. Which is, it's all right. It's on the coast 
of Oregon, right on the ocean. An incredible way to be raised. Because I was raised in a theatrical community uh, of intentional artists who gathered together around a theater company they called Red Octopus and raised children um, in this uh, somewhat communal way. We didn't live in one house, but we were kind of all watched by each other's parents. And I had a, a second mother that I was nursed by. And um, it's really kind of a, I feel like the only way to have kids. Is that horrible to say? I mean, well, the I, only way that I want to do it is by having different parents who are sort of of equal socioeconomic status versus like having nanny. Like what I think is intriguing. Nannies, nannies could work too. But I, having grown up with the latter, I think it's intriguing to hear about having multiple parents who are of the same status. Right. Because there's a whole thing of like, oh, I can't even imagine what that must do psychologically. It's really weird. And also to feel more connected, perhaps, at times to someone who's outside of your status level or is being paid to watch you. That's intense. But, I mean, I think it's you must have had a similar experience. My um, my husband was raised in Colombia, and he ha- always had nannies. And he just, the, uh, the relationship he has with his nannies is so close and so beautiful. You know, and that the that he doesn't feel that tension so much. That's what I was curious if there was a tension there between your mom and the other. You know, one of her. I assume it's one of her best friends. Yeah, there was, who nursed you. Uh, I mean, there is always tension between the women in my in my community because there a lot of them are alphas, and it's a small town. You know, it's. But there's always somebody fighting with them. And they're also making theater. So, like, they're always like, oh, my God, this person got this role and I didn't or they're too old for this. Or we there was a show they did called Quilters. God, my mom's not listening. To this. She might. It's OK. <laughs> she's been to she's been to employee of the month. She has. She loves you like any good Jewish mother would. Um they did this this play called Quilters, which is an all female cast. And by the end, like no one was speaking to each other. I kind of love that you learned at an early age to not only accept competition and arguments as part of the process, like, mm, yeah. but I find you particularly comfortable with it because it's such a necessary part of right. the process. And I feel like it's sort of like hidden, like, oh, yeah, you're going to not get a part. It's going to go to a best friend potentially, yeah. or it's going to go to someone you hate, or it's going to yeah. like, it's going to go. At some point, you are not going to get what you want, and you need to learn how to negotiate for these things yeah. and when to let go and... And that is part of the creative process in in general. Yeah. it's it, Well, I also feel like, funny enough, like being Jewish or the way that I that I connect to uh, the ethnic identity of being Jewish is being more comfortable with arguments as well. Yeah. So because um, my like father's side, the waspy side is a little bit less. They're, they, they like to avoid those kind of conversations. When you, I mean, the, I mean, I, and I, again, I'm talking about your personality and I, what I want to make sure that I don't do is diminish your talent. But I think because you have so much talent, you can walk around with an enormous amount of confidence right. and fight for what you want and what you believe in. And I think that only comes from having that talent. Like deep down mm. inside, you know how good you are. Mm. I think that w- what I am is uh, logical. And so I know what I'm bad at as well. Which is what? Math. Uh, well, no, I'm not so bad at math, but um, finances. <laughs> um, I'm bad at mm, keeping tidy. I'm bad at 
Well, like paying taxes, you know, things like that, like these normal kind of, those were not uh, high priorities also in my family, you know, growing up or being on time, (laughs) those little things. But walking around with the knowledge that I am good at what I do, which is performing, entertaining, I do feel like I can walk into a room and, and know that, you know. And take the entire room. I mean, everyone in the room will stop mm. and pay attention to you. Though what's interesting is that I had to let go of that being an identity marker because I did a, a wonderful job that paid a lot of bills for a while called the Darby, which was on 14th. It was in the old Nell space, which was a an incredible like 70s and 80s nightlife experience. And it was a great gig, but I was performing for a lot of models and rich nightlife people who were not used to live performance. They were nightclub people who then were trying to um, grow up and have like a different kind of elegant experience. And I, especially in the beginning, could not make them watch me or be quiet for me. And it was incredibly painful. I found it, in terms of stand-up, one of the most painful things in the world. Yeah. That I have to beg you, even after you've paid a lot of money, I still have to beg you to focus. Like, yeah. it's, it's not like they're coming in for free. I mean, I'm talking about when you've put down $40 and have a two-drink minimum, I still have to sing for my supper. Right. And what's odd is I find friends in theater and even improv never had that. They never had that experience where they have to constantly be on their toes. Yeah. Well, it's a good, really good learning. I mean, it was. I felt like it was like my graduate graduate degree in performance because I had to learn how to um, comfort the very angry person inside me that was uh, frustrated that people weren't listening to me and find another way into experience because I was still there making music and I had to find a really a much deeper love for the actual music. What were some of the things you did do that you found were effective? Oh, to make them listen? Yeah. <laughs> because unlike most cabaret stars, you have a very sharp wit mm. and can be very funny. Yeah. But they don't even they wouldn't even listen to my jokes. That's the other thing is that I couldn't I couldn't win them over like sometimes I'll be like you know I have some rules as far as if I perform somewhere I like if I'm hosting I like to open with a song so then people go like start from a respected respecting place Mm -hmm. of that I'm a great singer and then they'll listen to my humor but then conversely I can kind of do the other way if they're not listening to the music then I can get but it was impossible I mean Seth came in god who's Seth Herzog Okay. Oh, oh, the comedian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it was, I mean, it was impossible in that room. Meaning that he came in to warm them up before you got on? Yeah. Just to try to set the stage? I think it was just like the worst possible room to even, to try to do comedy. It was, yeah. So, so then... um, Have you tried performing at a synagogue? (laughs) (laughs) Or like my family. Actually, I just saw my great uncle for his 88th birthday and he goes... When I saw you perform, it was lousy. And I was like, perform? You mean my brother's wedding where I was giving a heartfelt toast? (laughs) Like, it is also interesting that you are always on to others. Yeah. Like, they're thinking you're performing. Yes. When you're just being. Yeah. Yeah. 
Though even when I was like going out of my way not to be performing <laughs> because I'm at Maybe an we're trying intimate to gathering, <laughs> right? You're trying so hard. Um, but I, the tricks, I I don't re- really. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I would sometimes get in there. I would get. I would get fierce and mean, and I would get in their faces. I would scream in models' faces. I would. I would thrash around my skirt. I would. Uh, you know, I would. Um, I would stop the band and have it just be like silence. I mean, it was like a petulant child. It was funny. I mean, I cried after every show for the first month, I think. I see that as progress because you weren't crying during. So I, <laughs> I, I look at that as an achievement. I'd like to get Yeah, and what really came out was that for so long, I had put in my brain like, I'm the kind of performer that just shuts up a room. I walk in and just shuts it up. And I've done it in a rowdy bar in Alaska, and I've done it in a shishi place in L.A., and I could do it anywhere, and I couldn't do it there. So I'm getting the picture that you were completely talented your entire life, and you were performing from a very young age. Yes, I was, though I was in, a da- I was in dance mainly because my second mother was a dance modern dance teacher, so I started at three, and... Um, so that was like my major training, even though I was in shows and my parents were in theater. The dance was like, you know, three times a week. And then I was in this pro- semi-professional dance company. And I was one of the worst dancers there. Yeah, but I just want to paraphrase, uh, for lack of a better word, with everyone or just set the stage that you're... A closest friend who was like a sister to you growing yeah. up dances for Mark Morris. So yeah. when you say that you were not one of the best dancers, it means that you you could have been in a in a, a company for all intents and purposes, just not one of the top two companies in the country, oh, if right. not the world. So. Right. And then all the other. What's strange is that I mean, many of the other girls that grew up in this in this dance company professionally dance all around the nation. I mean, yeah. So just to, just to, just to say that when you say I was one of but I wasn't one of the best, you you really are referring to people who became the best dancers in in the country. Right. Though though the pain of getting moved to the back over and over again is still real. Abso- no, absolutely. <laughs> I I know and I don't want to discount that and I um But it was great because I used it I really used my time around. I love being around dancers. They're incredibly physical, you know, and I just loving. And um, I would really use it to um, workshop my comedy because they're great comedy audiences. So that's also interesting because I've always heard the stereotype that they're not bright. And, of course, I only know the brightest ones because in order to thrive as a dancer, you have to be really bright. Yeah particularly when you're at the hands and mercy. I mean, same way with actors. Yeah. You're at the hands and mercy of a director or a choreographer. So you've really got Tyrant. to be able to... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be able to gently massage them into making sure that you are important. I mean, also body knowledge is intelligence. Right. But uh, brightness, I mean, my friends who are great dancers are incredibly bright as well. I mean, I am i don't know what the other realms are, but this is mainly classical modern dance that I'm friends with. Um, in addition to your kinesthetic intelligence, mm. um, you're yeah. also hilarious. And so I wanted to know, like, because you had different talents, obviously you've, you've turned it into this huge asset. Mm-hmm. Um, but were there times where you're like, should I be a comedian? Should I be in TV? Should I, like... Oh, yeah. People were telling me, I have still told, tell me all my life that I should be on SNL. And so when I came to New York, and I was, I was an actress before, and I was getting comedic roles 
when I came to New York, I went to UCB. And I studied there, and I felt very strongly that these were not my people. Tell me about that a little. There have been a bunch of people on the podcast who've had that similar response. <laughs> it was. There's maybe, a funny maybe this thing. podcast is just a portal for people who are incredibly talented individual performers. Who who then who, who then have these th- you know thriving careers, but went to UCB and were like, no, thank you, no, thank you. Yeah, I yeah. don't want to be part of this. Why I felt that? Well, the, it, it's a funny dynamic. It may have changed, but I felt like it was. There's an intense of course, boys club, because it's comedy. And then also you have these people, outcasts, because comedians are generally outcasts and very depressive, that are in a social scheme for the first time where they're not the outsiders. And so there's a lack of elegance, I think, and then an extreme extreme hunger for climbing. Because for once, their skills mean something. And then also it was just like, also, these nerdy guys were around women who, you know, would date them also. So it, it was, yeah, and uh, yeah, the whole the whole getting on a Herald team and that kind of, it just felt like, oh my God, are we adults, really? Like One of the things that you do bring, even though you are so funny and so honest with the whole vulnerability is the new strength, I remember oh, you yeah. saying that on stage and bringing myself to and many others to tears, is your grace and your class is like the work class. When you say someone's classy, it's like the least classy term, but you have an elegance. Oh, that's nice. Do, do you feel that way? I feel like Lady Rizzo has elegance and I can exercise it through that alter ego. But I don't think as Amelia, I'm as elegant. No, I would I would, I would, would strongly and humbly agree. But um, <laughs> But I, I, the reason I bring that up is because there is a part of the cabaret scene mm-hmm. that can feel both uh, brash and mm. undisciplined, mm-hmm. as if the women weren't either thin enough to be models or right. actresses, or uh, disciplined enough to become really good singers. Or theater artists. Or theater artists. And it feels, as an outsider, that you've watched uh, Nina Simone, and you've watched, mm. um, obviously she's not alive, so it, it's from a distance, but you, you've watched the leaders mm. in the field and and uh, mm. followed suit accordingly. Is that a fair thing to say? I feel very inspired by... Um, Peggy the, Lee was the other one I was yeah, thinking of. Yeah, absolutely. Nina, Nina Peggy. Um, I feel very inspired by forces of nature in music and, and, and those that have been um, theatrical with music and glamorous. So let's talk about the glamour. You have these beautiful dresses donated to you. How much is involved in, in making Lady Rizzo become a star? Do you have a staff? Yeah, I have a, a full-time assistant named Brendan Michaels who is really wonderful. And so, I mean, when I go, like I just did Edinburgh and a UK tour, and I, I couldn't have done it without him. He sets a, he He's detail-oriented. The thing is, once you, I mean, what I see also with a lot of, a lot of performers, especially when you're, when you are your own stage manager, your own assistant, your own hair, your own makeup, is that you have to put so much of your brain cells towards all those details, setting up your stage. You know, you know, when you have someone who cares about details, and especially in those precious hours right before you go on, I mean, that's, it's huge. And really early on, I realized that I needed to have a 
uh, staff. But you've also had that. I mean, your husband as a manager, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you have an additional management team, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Um, publicity. And how do you get, like, with the person who's helping you now, your assistant? Mm-hmm. I think Brendan. what's interesting is finding someone who doesn't need to be in the spotlight, mm. but is equally committed. You know, with both of my assistants that I've had, I met them. Uh, when I worked with on Taylor Mac's um, amazing seminal piece, The Lily's Revenge, which was a five-hour play, she was assistant director, and we really got along. And I also could tell, I could tell immediately that she was a hard worker and detail-oriented. And so I actually asked her if she knew anybody that would want to be my assistant, like because she was younger, and any one of her friends. And then she said, "Oh, let me think about it." She came back to me and said. I would. So, and then the second one, and then she moved on. She's, you know, a talented director. She, it's so hard for for both sides, but she had to, like, you know, evolve and direct more. And, um, and then with Brendan, I met him socially, and I just knew immediately I really liked him. I could feel, I could feel his, uh, his clarity what a perfect word. It is palpable having met him. Yeah. That he is as committed to you. And, you know, you'll see uh, very famous. I'm even thinking about Hitchcock's wife ended up like yeah. writing his scripts for him a lot of the time. But but really being a collaborator and not needing the spotlight, but being equally committed to, to the vision. To, yeah. yeah. Well, you watch that Joan Rivers great documentary. You saw that, I'm sure. Right. Loved. Yeah. Her assistant. I mean, what she said, that assistant for like 35 that years. was devastating. Then. Yeah. yeah. And then not knowing where he is. Yeah, I know. But then you saw with the one she was. I mean, it's close. You're 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 close. You were seeing them a lot. And Brendan touches my head to do my hair, so it's an, an, a different kind of intimacy. Because when t- someone touches your head, you tell them secrets. So that's good to know, which yeah. is an excellent segue, also known as the only segue to my next question. You've been naked on stage. You have touched, been touched. How do you? maintain a sense of like your own personal life while also revealing so much of yourself Mm. like with the nudity yeah I mean nudity is sort of like the easiest example of it yeah but I do feel that you are can't like what makes you a beautiful performer and a seductive force is your willingness to be vulnerable I know I feel like it gets me in trouble though it's in both in both directions because I'll say things on stage because you have, I mean, when you start breaking down that mind-to-mouth barrier so you can be super quick, it can be still malfunctioning as far as in social atmospheres out, off stage. And so I really have had to be like, oh, okay, you're not on stage. You don't need to say everything that comes into your mind, <laughs> you know, so much. And then also on stage... I've said, th- you know, I don't do it that much, but I have said things that I've then got off stage to be like, mm. But the irony is so funny to me because in most people's jobs, their goal is to have discretion when in public. They're like, oh, there's company here. I've got to, like, reel it in. <laughs> and for us, it's like the inverse where you're like, I'm on stage. I can say whatever I want. And then when you're around people, you have to be much more discreet. <laughs> yeah, I said something on stage um, actually last week about, a crime that I had committed. And I was like, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, what's the statute of limitations? And what, was the, what was the crime? <laughs> oh, God. Well, now, I mean, I didn't, 
I didn't actually commit it because that, well, so then anyways, I said, <laughs> let's not talk about it. Because then a friend of mine was like, you cannot say that <laughs> stuff on stage. You cannot. Like, it doesn't matter if if you think it's going to get a laugh or you're going to, you know, just you have to be care- more careful. Um, it is past the statute of limitations. But Can you give a, can you give a hint to well, listeners? Well, murder about- is... <laughs> Just kidding. It didn't hurt anyone. Was it, was it worth it is the real question I should Absolutely. be Absolutely. <laughs> I would do it again in a second. Absolutely. It did not hurt anyone. Now, you mentioned the, you know, being late, um, finances, the sort of, there are a lot of people who are obviously excellent at these things, um, and these are not your strong suits. Have Has it affected you badly? I feel like um, I, my, my, biggest goal in life is to just become a better person every day. And I do think that um, what I've realized is that uh, certain habits, tardiness and bad, being bad with finances, they in the end, they affect me negatively. And So you mentioned before the things that you genuinely struggle with. And one is finances. Another is sort of just basics of like being on time. Yeah. I struggle with this so much. And yeah. I was just oh, you curious. Do. Oh, and I was just curious, like, how do you, how have you dealt with these to help you be that better person that you genuinely want to be? Well, um, I think the the really feeling the truth of, um, I, I, it's important to me to be a respectful person, and that that, that being late um, is showing disrespect for the other person. It's saying that your time is more important, um, and you don't really feel like you're doing that at the time, but, um, it's, it's, um, wanting to squeeze too many things in, you know, in the wrong, wrong, wrong times. So, um, have I, I've gotten a little bit better actually. Um, and I, especially, it's so interesting because when I'm being paid, I am, I'm generally much more on time, but then I think there's a part of my brain that just relaxes, when I have things like meeting up with friends when I'm not being paid. Um, and I just try to, I try to, it's time management. It's doing things that you don't need to do at that moment. It's hard. When you travel. Mm-hmm. Which you, I am doing a lot of. I was going to say, do you, do you love the adventure of it? Do you feel like, oh, I should be home right now living in a suburban house, um, giving birth to 2.5 children? <laughs> it's that 0.5 that really hurts. <laughs> Um, I, Especially because you don't know which point five will be coming out. Yeah, and if it's the pointy <laughs> side, um, I I love. I mean, there's some. I mean, I I'm technically homeless right now, and there it it is equally as devastating as miraculous. It's, I mean, when you are forced to be in different places all the time and be in different homes, being different hotel rooms. You are open to presence. You're forced into presence because there's no mundane. I think that is a perfect segue. I was going to end our wonderful interview by sharing the songs you did live at the show at the Bell House. Ooh, cool. That was such a fun show. It is such a joy. I can't articulate how much I love you as a person and how excited I am for your career to continue to grow and grow and grow. 
let's have it grow. Let's have both of our careers just grow and blossom. We're in our prime. We're in our early prime. I feel that way. And like, I'm just going to take whatever chia pet that's out there and I'm just going to become bigger and better. Oh my God, you're going to get so bushy. It's going to be like a 70s vagina. I'm all about it. All right, here's to 70s vaginas. <laughs> and here's to Lady Rizzo. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. You look beautiful. You look puffy in all the right places. It's good to be home. I'm a chanteuse. That's how I introduce myself at cocktail parties, which I find is wonderful because it stops the conversation right away. Most people think it's a color of green. But as a chanteuse... Feel free to make noise when I expose parts of my body I haven't previously highlighted. These are just gams. They hold up my torso. I heard an old lady call them pins the other day. I like that. Nice set of pins you got there. Um, So... I, m- as a chanteuse, my favorite hobbies are, are uh, singing about unrequited love. And hopefully that's against a pane of glass where it's raining on one side. And hopefully that's not the side that I'm on <laughs> because then my mascara would run. But I'm not wearing any makeup tonight. I'm just <laughs> fresh-faced, really. Just rolled out of bed. So uh, this is a torch song for our time. Unfortunately, it's 2013. I just found out. I've been living in the 20s. (laughs) I Google you. When it's late at night and I don't know what I find photos you've forgotten you were in put up by a creepy friend I Google you when the day is done and there's nothing left I read that journal You kept your month in France (laughs) I've watched you dance disappear I should save my soul 
and crawl back in my hole. But it's too easy just to fold and type your name again. Don't do it. Don't do it, Rizzo. Put your fingers down. Why are you starting with that letter? The search history knows it. I information that I gather seems to say you found somebody new and I know it shouldn't matter
just want your identity to be it for this episode of the employee of the month show thank you to joel arnold thanks to all of you for listening please go to the employee of the month show.com website where you can subscribe to find out about monthly live tapings and how to get more episodes and how to be your best self and how to find true love and also win the lottery it's all there just go to the employee of the month show.com your answer for every single question um, including how to uh, get insurance health insurance from the new Obamacare. It's all there. I mean, trust me, everything is there. There's nothing you're missing. You can probably get lunch. You can just, if you can print it out, if you have a 4D printer, one that includes um, senses, you'll be fine. You'll feel satiated after. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks so much for listening. All that you've heard.